And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And what a story is my fair junkie, Amy Dresner's darkly comic memoir of two long days decades in and out of addiction in multiple forms. Her raw and at times brutal, honest, brutally honest book examines her decline from a life of privilege and of good girl behavior, which led to depression and eating disorder and then spiraled into drug and alcohol addiction. And eventually, another disorder appeared to take place of the ones she fought to beat, numbing out through risky sexual encounters that became a new addictive cycle of its own. Now, this may not sound like a book for the faint of heart, but as you get to know Amy, I'm sure you'll learn, as I did, that the details of how we act out our pain do not matter nearly so much as the universal truths that they reveal about us all. And in the hands of a skilled storyteller like Amy, this tale of extremes is peppered with humor and insights that will have you saying, ah, yes. I can completely relate, even as you're reading about the most outrageous moments and the lowest of lows. Former stand-up comic, writer for The Fix and psychologytoday.com, and author of My Fair Junkie, Amy Dresner. Well, to the bubble hour. Hi, Jean. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I enjoyed your book so much. Thank you Aww, for writing it. Thank you. Thank you. I feel, I feel like your story, um, it could have easily been kind of a titillating tell-all, like dark erotica kind of book, but instead you chose to reveal introspection and in the midst of sex and drugs, you also kind of chose a higher road and answered a calling with this story. You really, you didn't hold anything back, but you struck what seems to me to be a difficult balance. And I wonder if that was a deliberate choice you made or did it just sort of unfold as you wrote it? Well, I wanted to write the book to help people. That was really, you know, my, 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 the drive behind it. I wanted to help other addicts feel less alone and feel less ashamed and less broken and to give them hope because as a, you know, someone who had relapsed a lot and been in a lot of rehab, you know, I, there was many times where I was like, I'm just never going to get this. I'm going to die mm-hmm. a drug addict. Like, this is not, this is, this is not looking good, you know? And um, I wanted people to know it's never too late. And if you're alive, you've got a chance and just don't give up. And, um, I also wanted, like, family and friends of non-addicts to kind of get a view, an inside view of what addiction is like for the addict, like what it's like to be in our brain, what mm-hmm. that brain is like, the convoluted thinking, the rumination, the, compuls- the compulsivity, all the negativity, the self-loathing, like what that's like. So it was, it, that, was, that was my goal. And um, from the messages I'm getting, like, it actually is doing that, which is so amazing to turn, like, 20 years of pain and self-destruction into, like, a tool that's helping people. It's like, wow, you know, like, it's, I'm so, I don't regret a moment of what I went through because it's helped other people. I really don't. And um, in terms of the comedy, I, you know, my father's a comedy writer and, 
you know, I was a stand-up comic for five years, and I know that there's parts that are super, super heavy in the book, and I just thought, if I don't make it a little bit funny, people are just going to want to, like, garrote themselves with dental floss. They're just going to be like, oh, my God, I can't even read anymore. This is so dark and depressing. You know, and I just, I wanted points that where there was some levity. And I also, for myself, I needed to laugh at myself and the circumstances and see the humor to survive some of that stuff. So what's your writing process like? What what was it like to write that? Was it hard to revisit that really dark stuff? I mean, can you just sit in Starbucks and write about that? Or did you have to... (laughs) (laughs) No. Double latte. No, um, no, it was was brutal. I mean, it was... You go through a real emotional roller coaster. I mean, there were parts... I did not write the thing in order, although I had to have the full outline. Um, Going back into that place of active, active addiction, that headspace, was really... Painful, especially the sexual stuff. That was the most painful and the most humiliating to write about. And there was definitely parts where I was like, I don't want to put this on the page. And I just know as a writer, like, that's exactly what you have to put on the page because that is going to be the thing that someone's going to go, oh, my God, thank you. Like, you can't hold back. If you're trying to look good in an addiction memoir, like, you're not being honest enough. Like, let's be honest. So Mm -hmm. um, it was a roller coaster of emotion. And it was weird because... I didn't, like, I knew it had been me that had done those things, but I almost didn't recognize that person, if that makes any sense. Ah, uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Because you're somewhere else yeah, now, I, right? And yeah, so completely. Did you find yeah, I just celebrated five years. Back? Five yeah, years. Congratulations. I mean, I, thank you. Um, compassion. Uh, you know, honestly, I found it harder because... You know, when I was going through stuff at the time, I, I had the denial. I had my excuses. You know, I, I was in active addiction. I didn't. Now I have, you know, all of this insight. And I also have all of this, like, uh, what's it called? Like 2020 vision, like looking back. What's it called? I'm sorry. It's been a long day. Uh, you know, uh, hindsight. Foresight. But, you know, when you look hindsight, thank you. Good <laughs> Lord. Hi, I've had 12 seizures and done a lot of really heavy narcotics and got a head injury. I was smart at one time, and now I can't remember a word. It's awesome. Okay, Um, so um, what was I saying? Um, Yeah, those parts were really, really difficult to write about. Yeah. And because I didn't have the blinders that I had at the time. At the time, I was just full of excuses and denial, and I didn't really see it. Looking back, I mean, there's even moments where I'm like, oh, please don't do that, Amy. Don't do it. Did you re- oh, stop, 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 stop. So um, compassion, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it made me sad that I was in that much pain that I had to do those things. And mm-hmm. I didn't have better tools, you know, that I, ha- that I was like, I got to get out. That was it. That was my whole thing. It was like, I, I got to get out. How do I get out? How do I get out of this feeling? How do I get out of my body? You know, how do I check out? And so, um, I mean, the thing that it really helped me let go of were any remnants of shame. Because it's all out there now. And no one has been like, ew, gross. People are just like, thank you. I really identified. And like you said, it's like, you know, maybe some people haven't done the extreme stuff I've done. But what it's really all about is the feelings. Yeah. And that's what I tried to, to draw to drill into people. Like 
like underneath all the stuff was like the feelings and people could all identify with the feeling of loneliness or despair or self-loathing or, you know, whatever, whatever it was, you know, panic. You know Um, what? I think it probably there's in some ways I would started reading this book thinking you and I couldn't be more like we're the same age and we both have pretty great hair. And we look but... pretty good. And we look, and we both look pretty good, okay? <laughs> we look pretty damn good. But honestly, like, I'm from Canada, which is not nearly as glamorous as California girls. Oh, my God. I want to come to Canada so much. Are you kidding me? I love Canadians. I want to move there. I've never been. Well, I want nice. to come so much. You're you would liven it so up here nice. for sure. And I, I was married for 20 years. Like I, like my life, wow. you would probably look at me and just fall asleep thinking this woman has a boring life. But, and yet like these things that I read your book and was just nodding the whole time. I'm like, yep, I know what that is. I didn't do any of that stuff, but I know what that is. And right. we've right. all compromised ourselves in some way. And yeah. that's what I think yeah. is the beauty of your book is that you really got to the truth behind it. And you know what? I read somewhere that um, it, what movie directors, if they're filming a rape scene, they have to decide if they're going to show the woman's body, which sort of sexualizes and eroticizes the moment, or if they're just mm. going to close in on our face, which which takes out the act of sex and uh, and the human response to the act of sex, and just focuses you in focuses you in on what she's going through in that moment. And I thought of that as I read your book huh. because even though you were telling us. Ex- Explicitly about many, many, many yeah. <laughs> encounters. Oh, they cut a lot um, of them, and they cut a lot of them. They made me much look much less promiscuous than I was. Thank God. They were like, "We want to cut a couple of these for narrative arc." I'm like, "Go ahead. <laughs> I'd like to get married again someday. Go ahead." <laughs> <laughs> but you really focused on the compulsion, the frequency that it was kind of a pain in the butt. I mean, it was a burden, right? In the same way that addiction. Oh, it was totally. Oh, yeah. And and it was really, there was just such a hopeful sadness, really, with every encounter. Oh, I know. None of it was erotic. There was no, like, I never had to throw a glass of water in my face reading your book, you know? Like, woo, this is exciting stuff. It was really No, I didn't want to make it salacious, you know? It wasn't salacious. And it's like, I mean... I mean, in the, what's salacious, I mean, what's, what's sexy and stimulating about it is mostly the idea, you know, and maybe the first encounter with one hot guy was sort of interesting, but after that, it just becomes, you just, you hate yourself, you drive home crying, they don't call you, you feel empty, you don't, you know, you don't know what you're doing, and it's like, and then it becomes, and then it became this sort of monster in me, this weird compulsive thing that really scared me. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it was like, it really, it was like, I was searching for love. It was so obvious to me. And I was sort of trying to dress it up as something else. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm liberated and, you know, I'm a female stud. And I just knew that that wasn't true. I was looking for love as you see towards the end of the book. And it's like, you know, I'm glad that that came through. Even I was like trying to connect, even though I wasn't trying to connect, I was just, it was, it was not something I ever thought I'd pick up having been such a good girl and having huge bouts of celibacy in my life. You know, I was like celibate in, for seven years, like in my twenties, you know, I lost my virginity quite late. And so that, that, you know, you know, having like, like a sexual addiction was n- never something I thought I'd have that would be in the cards for me ever. 
And I think that that's sort of what's interesting. Does that speak to the fact that it really isn't about the sex, right? It really... Of course. Of course. It's, it's not. It's, it's, I think it's a part of alcoholism. I think all of that stuff is a part of addiction, which yeah. is, you know, the eat, eating, the gambling, the shopping, the sleeping with people, all of it is, is escaping your feelings, escaping yourself, not sitting with yourself, your feelings, you know, trying to fill yourself from the outside. It's all the same thing, I think. It, there's a point in your book when um, uh, I believe you were in the UK at the time and, and um, uh, someone that's looking after you says to you, you know, all of these things, the, the eating disorders, the body dysmorphia, the drugs, the booze, the sex, all of this is symptomatic of childhood trauma and you've got a long way to go to heal. And a reader yeah. might, or someone who doesn't really understand addiction and recovery might say, oh, well, you're sober now, so you're healed. But the fact is, you have to get sober first, and then the healing yeah. starts, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I was um, sober, and that was an analyst. I mean, of course, they want to say, yeah, this is going to take you 10 years to get through, and you're going to buy me, you know, a, a, a boat, you know, during the process. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I was, I was dry at the time. I was, I, I guess I had six years, you know, without, without program. And so I had no tools. So I was just dry. And, you know, I mean, I, I want to say this up front. Any way you can get sober is great. I'm down. If you want to do yoga and that gets you sober, great. Like, you, you know, you want to Buddhist meditation. Awesome. Like whatever gets you sober. It's like, I'm not, you know, like a fundamentalist for 12 step or any other thing. Like, but I just had no real tools to cope. And, um, and then I ended up, you know, slitting my wrist with a box cutter. One of the many times I just, you know, was like, I'm out. I'm out of here. You did that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And yet, I mean, um, childhood trauma. I mean, we don't know. I mean, Gabor Mate thinks all addiction is childhood trauma. And then, uh, you know, there's scientists saying, hey, there's a huge genetic component. And then there are people who go, I've had no childhood trauma and I've been an, I'm an alcoholic. Like we don't, I don't think we know. And I think it's different for different people. You know, mm-hmm. people go to war and they come back with PTSD and then they just, you know, become alcohol. I don't think we know enough about it. I really don't. I'd have to agree with you. I mean, if, if recovery is so complex, how can addiction be so simple Absolutely. right I mean, <laughs> it's very personal it's very yeah it's very personal addiction is personal and so is recovery personal yeah absolutely really so amy you've used different pathways to achieve your recovery and a lot of listeners might not realize but there's different 12-step programs for all different kinds of addictions like for gambling mm-hmm. for sex for alcohol for drugs um when you have multiple kinds of addictions, would you say that it's necessary to use like all those specific programs or did you find that there was one out of all the different programs that sort of worked as an umbrella for all of your various isms? This is my personal, you know, opinion. Okay. And experience. I went to sex and love addicts anonymous. I went to sex addicts anonymous. Um, I went to narcotics anonymous, even though I was mostly a drug addict. And then I ended up getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where I've stayed. Um, the steps are pretty much the same in all the programs. So I mean, if you want to go somewhere to specifically talk about this specific issue, but I just found that the healthier I've gotten and the more work I've done on myself, the more of those compulsive behaviors have fallen away. And I don't mm-hmm. think the, the, the specific program is that important. So, um, yeah. 
I, I basically have used AA as the umbrella, even though booze was probably the least of my problems. I mean, I just, well, I was so, I was so out of control. I, I, I tried to stay away from it because I would black out and like get naked and violent so quickly. I was like, yikes. So then I just kind of tried to stick with, you know what I mean? I was like, okay, this really, really puts us in another zone quickly. Like maybe there's something else where we can like achieve, you know, a, you know, a high without completely losing total control of ourselves which is what I found in like crystal meth and cocaine and stuff like that. At least I was like still kind of coherent, you know, but um, so that's my experience, you know. What supports your recovery now? What else do you do besides AA? Do you do any other things that are sort of supplementing it? Um, I do yoga. I, I meditate. I, you know, but the problem with being, you know, an alcoholic or an addict, at least for me, is I'm either doing something every day or I'm never doing it. Like, if I give myself one day off, it's out the window. What happened? I was going to the gym every, every day. I was going to the gym every day, right? I started writing my book. I was like, oh, just, I took one day off, right, where I had to, like, meet a deadline. I don't even know where the gym is now. It's been, like, two years. I'm like, I don't even, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, same thing with meditation. I gave myself one day. I was like, oh, I don't have time. Boom. Gone. Months go by. I'm like, ah, you know, I mean, we're such extremists, you know, it's like we're smoking meth or we're vegan, you know, it's like, it's like, really? Yeah. Where's the moderation? You know, so I do, I do need to get back to meditation. Um, I do find that extremely helpful to kind of separate myself from my thoughts and my feelings and get in touch with myself as a separate, you know, go, oh, I'm not my thoughts and my feelings. Woo! you know, and kind of watch them like a voyeur and go, those are interesting instead of being swept up in sort of the drama of them. Um, and I also do breath work for recovery. Um, I, I'm part of a, of a circle and I mentioned it in the book and I still go to that on Tuesday nights and there's a bunch of us in recovery from all sorts of stuff. And we all lay on the ground and breathe together, listen to music and cry and, you know, move stuff. I found that um, some of the stuff I need to access through my body, I can't access everything through my head. I think too much, and so I'm uh, as I at five years, I'm trying, I'm, I'm getting more into my body. And as a writer, I'm in my head so much already. So um, I think we hold a lot of emotions in our body too. That's what I'm finding. You know, I'm doing yoga and I'm like crying. I'm like, oh, good. You know. Mm-hmm. Issues in your tissues, like, right? Got to let that out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, so um, doing that and, yeah, I mean, when I'm feeling really spun out, I'll go get, like, a cheap massage, you know, not like a creepy one, but, you know, <laughs> like a Thai, like a Thai, you know, like one of those, you know, Thai places and just, you know, have someone touch you and just relax. I mean, I've been celibate now for, like, 10, 10 months, and it's like, you know, I mean, I, I love my cat, Colonel Puff Puff, but he doesn't you know, to fight, he doesn't supply all my needs for love. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So, you know, I do a lot of service. I have sponsees, all of that kind of stuff. And, um, I mean, really the book has connected me with a whole new group of people, men and women, you know, in sobriety who people are struggling. And I, I message everyone back and it's been really, it's really been amazing to have that communication with people. You know, your willingness to do that is astounding. You said that you read every single thing that people send you. Um, you reach out personally to people like me who um, 
have podcasts and, you know, it's just like, I don't feel like there's this layer of protection around you the way that, Mm -mm. um, that some people have. And I, I think that that's so amazing because it's such a gift. I mean, this book is a gift. You really had to open your heart and be incredibly vulnerable for the sake of helping other people. But then the fact that you back it up in the way that you do is amazing. And does that exhaust you at all? Or do you find it energizes you? Um, it can, you know, I mean, at this point, I'm not, you know, I'm not quite as bombarded with messages all the time and they come, but I do take the time to write people back and they're blown away. They're blown away that I write them back. But I, I understand that people feel connected to me because the book is so intimate and I'm just a person, I'm just an ex junkie that wrote a book. I'm not a celebrity, you know? And so I think it takes tremendous bravery on the part of a stranger to reach out to someone they don't know and say, Hey, you know, thank you. Your book really blah, blah, blah. I'm struggling with this. You know, do you, what do you suggest? I'm very careful about giving any type of, you know, uh, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a rehab. You know what I mean? So I'm very yeah. careful mm-hmm. about lines I draw in terms of, but you know, Someone just, a girl just said, you know, I, I just was wondering, like, what you do for fun. I feel, I'm a year sober, and I feel like I can't have any fun. It's not fun anymore. And I wrote her back, and she just was like, thank you for your really thoughtful response. People like fan girl out, too. They're like, I can't believe you wrote me back. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just an addict who wrote a book, girl. Like, I'm just like you, you know. I mean, have you ever written to someone who, who wrote a book that touched you and said, like, oh, yeah. thank you so much for book? Oh, well, I've never done that. I think that's amazing. And I wouldn't, and I, because I, I wouldn't think they'd write me back. So, well, and they don't, I think they don't write you back. See? <laughs> and that, and then, and then you don't like them as much. <laughs> well, you know what? I really thought yeah. Oprah, I mean, I'm sure Oprah gets a lot of mail, but I can't believe she didn't write me back. Um. <laughs> you know, I mean, it might get to a level, I mean, I don't know, you know, where I can't personally handle all that stuff. I'm one person. But at this time, you know, it takes a couple minutes to write someone back. And say, yeah, I hear you, and I'm so glad my book helped you, and don't give up, and blah, 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 and whatever. Just address whatever their thing is, you know? Answer their question. Hey, how come you didn't, you know, this in the book, or blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. So, I just, I, I don't know. Uh, it never occurred to me not to. Maybe I've got boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think you have a big heart, and it's service, right? I mean, and it'll run its course. Totally. And- yeah. Absolutely, I want our listeners sir. to know, too, that you are going to be at She Recovers in L.A. in September. I am. And uh, I'm going to get to meet you, so I'm really excited. But, uh, yeah, Yay! our listeners, we'll have a lot of listeners that will be there, and uh, I'm sure they'll be excited to see you in person. So get I ready love, for a whole lot of yeah, love. I love. Oh, I'm totally excited. I, of course, you know, I dress like a homeless, you know, basis from Reseda most of the time. Like, I just, like you know, ripped t-shirts and cords. And of course they are, Taryn and uh, Donna are like, we want you to host a gala. I'm like, ah, I'm like, oh my God, do I have to wear a dress? Like, oh, kill me now. Like, you know, it's not terrifying enough to be on stage and speak to 600 women, right? But it, I'm like, I have to be dressed up too? Like, kill me, Ah, oh. But um, I love them so much, and I'm so excited. And um, yeah, they're just they're like beer irreverent, gnarly, gross, funny, hilarious, true self. We want you. And I'm like, you got it. This, I can't be anyone else. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. Right. 
So, you know, you're getting the non-swearing version tonight. I'm very well-behaved tonight. You're doing beautifully. Uh, Thank you. uh, I know our listeners will forgive you if you slip a little, but um, (laughs) I I, I have to exercise. But I'm super excited. Yeah. I swear a lot, and um, I'm really, like, I did the, the Share podcast, and someone was like, whoa, a lot of swearing, and I think you had to put, like, a, a thing before, like, warning people that there was a lot of swearing, and I was like, oh, God, how embarrassing, like, you know, like, come on, Amy, let's grow up, let's, let's polish it up a little bit, let's, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to be me within the confines of, of whatever the environment is, you know, respect the environment, respect the podcast, respect the host. You know, and, and pick up that vibe, read the audience, and sort of be yourself within that. And that's part of recovery, it's too, right? Message. Just thinking Absolutely. about other, yeah, your sort yeah. of responsibility in the world. And um, I, I actually see that as, uh, like, it's a whole, I feel like we're all sort of onions. And as we recover, another layer kind of peels off and something new mm-hmm. is revealed underneath. And when we kind of get to that place where we can be that way, whether it's being, whatever we have to, you know, sand down on ourselves to take whatever the rough edges are um, off so that we can reach more people. I mean, that's Absolutely. not about being fake. Yeah, you, it? it's, it's no, really, you want, but yeah, but you want, you don't want to, you know, deliver the message in a way that's, that is not, you know, it's going to block people from hearing it. Saying that I spoke at a very, very large meeting and um, probably Half the, audi- half the audience was horrified. <laughs> and then the other half were, uh, you know, it charmed and inspired and hysterically laughing. So I think there is also something to, you know, my father's always like, well, if you're not pissing people off, you're not saying anything new. You're not, you know, being truthful. You know, you've got to be, there's also that whole thing of like breaking new ground. It's, I say some things that people are, find very provocative that, you know, are new ideas. And I think that's how change happens. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I say, I speak the truth, you know, of things that happen in the rooms or you know, true experience and people kind of get like, oh, you know, about it. And it's like, I just, I find it that odd. I find that sort of, and I don't, I'm in a place where I sort of don't care. You know, I'm like, you know, the people who got it, got it. And the people who didn't like it, you know, you can't, again, you can't please everyone. If you try and please everyone, you're, you're just going to dilute yourself and be nobody. Like I never read the comments on any of my fix articles because it would make me afraid to write my truth. You know, some people are going to love you and some people are going to hate you and you've just got to be true to yourself. If anything, I've learned that in recovery. It's like, I have to live with myself. I have to feel good about myself. I have to speak my truth. Amy, do you find you know, without that the... hurting them? sometimes the positive comments can mess with your head just as much as the negative ones too. Don't you find that you have to really stay grounded? Absolutely. And- well, this is, yes. Well, I haven't read the comments, but now this is the book's been out. Like, um, my publisher was like, get on Instagram, which is like mostly pictures of my cat and the books that like, people are like, Oh my God, <laughs> like pictures of you. Like you're like a crazy cat lady. Um, um, and people are making like memes of things I've said or memes from the book, memes of things I've said on podcasts or memes from the book. And it's weird. Like, I'm not going to say it's not weird. It's like, I'm like, whoa. And I'm trying to, and then I got someone who said something really nasty to me on Twitter. And I just thought, okay, if we believe the good hype, 
then we're going to believe the bad hype and it's going to be a real roller coaster. So let's just stay in the middle and stay grounded. You mm-hmm. can't really believe either of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, of course I want validation. Of course I'm insecure. Of course I want to hear everyone, want everyone to love me. And, you know, of course. Even though, you know, even though I come off as unlikable in the book, I was doing a podcast with one other guy said, I didn't like you for the first two chapters. I was like, <laughs> I don't like her. She's judgmental. And then I was like, okay, I was being, first of all, if you aren't sort of a mess at the beginning and kind of an a-hole, right? Like, where's the transformation? Oh, I was angelic when I was smoking mess. And, but, you know, like, why get sober? You know what I mean? There has to be a trans- transformation. And I wanted to be honest. Like, I was entitled. I was bratty. I was sarcastic. I was, you know, superior. I was abusive. And it's like, that's the truth. I was more interested in writing the truth and then being liked in the beginning. You know what I mean? I was like, that was really, you know, I was like, who, as I said before, like, you know, who cares? Like, you have to, if you're going to write an addiction memoir, be honest or why write it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And showing that arc, I mean, it, that's the hardest part to write, right? Is to admit who you were in the beginning, even just oh, to see yeah. it. Uh, you can't oh, do that. Oh, yeah. I look back and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to look at that stuff. And it's like, you know, I'm like, ooh. You know, I mean, even just doing like, you know, I, just, that, that, I, just even seeing who I used to be and recognizing that and not being that person anymore is is a big step. I mean, I ran into someone who hadn't seen me in like five years and, and he was like, you're a completely different person. He's like, it's weird. Really? He's like, it's, he was like, yeah. He goes, it's spooky. He's like, you're, you've transformed so much. It's unbelievable. And I was like, and you don't feel it because you're, it's you and it's happening really slowly. And you, you know, you're still working on like, oh, I still need to work on this crappy part of myself or this bad habit or this bad character defect. And so you don't really notice it because it happens really, you know, slowly over time. It's not like mm-hmm. you emerge like Superwoman style. Ta-da! Here I am, the new shiny me. You know, it's like. <laughs> It was a long process, a really long process. But, um, yeah, I was more interested in telling the truth than I was about being liked. And um, I don't know if that makes me stupid or, you know, brave. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it makes you brave. I I have to say, though, like just looking at how much you've changed and – you know, you say in the book that because you were in treatment so many times and you had access oh. to so much information, you could sit in a meeting and rattle off cognitive behavioral therapy and 12 steps. Oh, yeah. You know, and you could really sound like a star student in meetings, but then you'd leave the rooms and it was a different story. And oh, now, right. you know, knowing what you know now, are you able to really spot that in other people in the rooms? And do you, how do you, do you call them out? Do you connect with them? Or how do you respond to that when you see it now? Um, I mean, I don't really judge other people. I think everyone has their own journey. Uh, for me, the key was, um, I mean, I, you know, I speak and I sponsor, but I never call other people out on their stuff. It's none of my business. Um, and, if someone had called me out on it, I, I don't, I don't know that I would have been ready. And I, I really just don't think it's my business. 
Um, but there's always those people that I, are able to sort of like say the right thing. And, you know, you, you talk about that one gentleman that came up to you after a meeting and said, you know, you think we're all crazy here, but you're here for a reason too. And that wasn't like, a meeting. That was the psych ward. That was the psych ward. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yes. Was, and the, I was in 5150. I was in a psychiatric ward. Yeah. And I'm there. I'm making fun of everyone. Right? Judging everyone. Oh, yeah. And did, he just said, did you feel yeah, judged or did you feel like seen? Did you feel? No, I, I, the, felt like, I felt like he called me out and I was like, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. But in meetings, I mean, that's a different thing. And it's like, um, no, I just, for me, I had to really act myself into a new person. I couldn't think about it anymore. I had to, you know, whatever your spiritual beliefs, and I've gotten more sort of into the universe and like, you know, God has my back and synchronicity thing as I, you know, as the longer I've stayed sober. Um, but, you know, I really, you know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like you act like the person that you want to be, and eventually you are that person. Because people are judging you by your actions. They're not judging you by your intentions. And if you act like a certain way long enough, you change your neural pathways, and eventually that is your default. That is who you are. So that's really what I had to do. That was the big change in this sobriety was instead of, you know, how am I feeling? How am I feeling? You know, it was, what am I doing? Mm. That comes back to um, something your dad taught you, an expression that he uses about structure versus discipline. Tell us about that. So for years, he said to me, discipline creates stability. Stability doesn't create discipline. And I was like, I don't, what are you, what do you even mean? What does that mean? And that basically means that a structured sort of routine life creates a feeling of stability within you versus waiting for that feeling of calm or readiness, you know, to do those things. And I had been waiting my whole life to feel ready. And I've got to tell you, if you're waiting to feel ready to write a book or go to the gym or get sober, or whatever it is, you'll get married, you'll never feel ready. You know, you get ready by doing it. Um, and, it, and that's yeah. kind of what AA so is all I, about, right? Don't you think? Like, it's absolutely, sort of completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's asking yourself in the right thinking. It's cognitive behavioral therapy is really what it is. Yeah. Well, and you'd say that and one of your counselors said that alcoholics are like puddle people because we don't have any uh, yeah. emotional <laughs> like, skeletons. Skeleton no skeletons. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm still blown around by my emotions a lot. I have big, big feelings. That's not going to change. You know, what can change is how I choose to, you know, express those and how, what I choose to do with those feelings. Do I let them get me loaded? Do I let them make me rage on someone? Do I, you know what I mean? Like you can feel those feelings and, you know, and go, oh, okay, you know, and not take them quite as seriously. I mean, the thing that I've learned finally is the feelings pass, you know, and I never knew that before. You know, when you're, when you're an alcoholic or an addict, you think the way you feel right now is the way you're going to feel forever. It's never going to change. I'm always going to da-da-da. You know, we're very extremists, always, never everyone, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, none of that's true. The good passes, the bad passes, feelings pass, and they come in waves and you don't have to act on them. You don't, they'll pass. 
And I actually heard you say on another podcast too, that like, whether you pick up or not, that feeling is going to pass. So you might as well stay sober and just ride it out. Right. Don't lose everything. Yeah. It's like, yeah, buying yourself 20 minutes and just like, yeah, that urge to use that craving will pass. So, you know, yeah, if you, yeah, if you pick up or not, so, but if you pick up, then you're opening up that vortex again and then you're on a bender and the craving starts and it's a whole nightmare. And it took me a really long time to figure that out, you know, but you can stay sober while still having urges to use. You don't have to be like, I love being sober every minute of the day. Like you can be like, God, I want to check out, you know, <laughs> man, I'd love to whatever, have a glass of wine right now and just, you know, and instead I'll take a nap or I'll take a bath or whatever, cry. I just, you know, and I got my heart broken and I mean, it was brutal. I mean, I really thought I might not make it through sober and I did. Well, and that, you know, you, that is the boyfriend that was kind of your happy ending to your story. Yeah. You know, to me, when I heard afterwards that, that you had broken up and that you made it through that sober, I was like, well, that is the happy ending to me is that you sobriety right. got Absolutely. you through that. And really, yeah. that, I mean, it's not about the guy at all, is it? It's that you were actually ready not. to accept love. That you yeah, really and I was ready to give it. I was a terrific partner. I was, I was very, very... You know, I was the best girlfriend that person ever had. He'll tell you that. And he also told me who he was in the very beginning. Hey, I'm terrified of relationships and marriage. And instead of, you know, going, oh, hey, maybe we're not on the same page with what we're looking for. <laughs> you know, I was like, I will change you. I'm special, you know, you know, like a lot of women, you know, and for a while I did. And then, you know, his, his issues kicked back up and, you know, and he bailed. So. Now I'm very careful when someone tells me who they are to believe them and not right. think that I can change them, you know, not take that red flag and go, I'm, this would make a lovely throw cushion, you know, let me get out my, you know, sewing machine, <laughs> like, you know, really paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. But denial is a big part of our disease too. And it shows up in different Absolutely. ways, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that you, you said in your book that is like has been ringing in my ears all weekend I was just on a ski trip and honest to god Amy like I read your book I don't know how it's been like I guess it's been over a week because we had to postpone our chat and um that's yeah yeah you were sick my new hobby and- my new hobby getting my new hobby getting sick <laughs> <laughs> like, like I said I was never sick when I was using ever 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 either I was too high I didn't notice or nothing could live there because I was such a like, toxic wasteland <laughs> Now, sober, sick all the time. All the time. <laughs> That's my oh, new hobby, God. getting sick. <laughs> Poor you. Well, well, you were in bed with your cat recovering. I was, your words were bouncing around my head all week. And, I mean, your book just really, it really stays with a person because there's just, there's so much there. But one thing that, I mean, because I kept showing up, like, you know what I mean? Even though I don't have a whole lot of sex and drugs in my life as a, as a grandma in Canada, I... My God, are you a grandma? Wow. I am. I know. I'm lucky. That's amazing, um, though. That's so cool. I mean, no, I don't think your life sounds boring at all. I think it sounds wonderful. I would love to have a marriage that lasted, you know, two decades and, you know, a child. And, you know, I mean, I just didn't get it yeah. together in time do that you know it just took me a really really long time to you know put the pieces together yeah and you know that 
now you're ready for it. So who knows what's going to unfold for you. And the, but the truths that we share, this is what I was going to tell you is that the, some of the truths that you shared in this book really just kept banging around in my head. And um, one thing you said is that when you're a drug addict, you, you know, you're going to have to pay the piper at some point, like you can only push mother nature so far before things come back at you. And so even though I'm not a drug user, um, although I could have been, because you know what, I was a very big fan of changing my feelings. I just chose other ways to do it. But I, it comes up in other ways for me. Like I am a, a Scottish Irish girl covered in freckles who loves the sun. I knew it was only a matter of time before I had a sketchy. And so sure enough, I get one. Right. And, and the doctor says, okay, listen, this is a cancerous mole. We got it all, but now you cannot be in the sun ever again, head to toe sunscreen. Like, Wow. And I fought it so hard. And so here's what I was thinking as, as I'm sitting there in the doctor's office nodding while he's like reading me the riot act about being responsible. Right, right. And I'm thinking, Amy Dresner can shoot cocaine into her neck <laughs> and survive. <laughs> and I'm sitting here getting heck for not wearing sunscreen. Like what Ooh. on earth? Like I, I just, I was so, I was in denial. I was mad. I was pissed off. But then I was like, you got to pay the piper, Jean. Like you can only do this so long yeah, and it's all relative. It doesn't matter like what it is. It, it, it's whatever we're doing that we know in our heart isn't right. And we just think we can just do it and it'll never matter. There is no equilibrium. And that's what I'm getting to. So I, I get a lot of people that write to me and say, well, I'm holding it together. Do I really need to quit? And I'm like, yeah, because this is an illusion what you have right now. Yeah. You think that you can holding it together. That sounds really like a lot of work too. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? The whole kind of like holding it together and the moderation and the like sort of like, you know, the trying to manage and control is so much harder than just abstinence for me. Yeah. And, and it really is not have a any. matter of time before of you course. drop a plate. Or, yeah. And you're right. I find it so much easier. I was trying to explain that to someone just this weekend. And uh, and that was just, to me, it's just so much easier to be black and white. Because oh, as yeah. you said earlier, you know, we are people of extremes. We like zero and we like 10, but we're not great at five. And so yeah, right, right. moderation in exercise, in sugar, in a, yeah. none of that is my uh, thing or your yeah. thing. <laughs> not interesting. Yeah, not, not yeah. interested. Yeah, it's like yeah, but I mean, I have epilepsy from crystal meth now. I've had it for fifteen years. I mean, it's controlled with medication, but yeah, I mean, I didn't get away with it. No, this is true. And uh-huh. let's talk about your epilepsy. Let's talk about your helmet. About your helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so when um, I so I, I had been diagnosed with with drug-induced epilepsy at five years uh, clean. And I was having, like, grand mal seizures. I was living in Paris at the time. And um, I relapsed, of course, a couple years later. And, you know, if you shoot cocaine, shooting cocaine, it's very easy to... An overdose of shooting cocaine is basically a convulsion. It's a seizure. I mean, if you're really unlucky, it's a stroke. But uh, mostly you'll have a convulsion. And so, you know, shooting cocaine is, you know, dicey. And shooting cocaine with epilepsy is extraordinarily stupid and dicey. And um, I kept having shooting cocaine and having a seizure, and I didn't want to stop shooting cocaine. So I got this really brilliant idea 
that I was like, well, obviously, like, this is a high-impact sport. I need to wear protective gear. Like, I'll wear this red biking helmet <laughs> while I do cocaine so that if I saw, if I have a seizure, I won't, like, crack my head open, you know? And, um, and I actually did that. And, and I would wear, even, there were times when stress used to induce my seizures, too. It was a time when my epilepsy was really active. It was super scary, and we couldn't get the right meds to control it. And my mom would say to me, honey, you sound like you're getting very stressed out. Would you please put your helmet on? I'm worried about you. I'm totally serious. You know, I know that's just like a visual you can't get out of your head. Like someone, and it was like my friend's bike helmet. It was like, had like a Grateful Dead sticker on the front. I hate the Grateful Dead. No fans, no offense to Grateful Dead fans, but like, oh my God. But yeah, there I was shooting up in my kitchen wearing a red helmet, bike helmet. In a nightgown, like a 70s, in the 70s, like peignoir nightgown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And that helmet, when I read that part, it gave me hope because I was like, she cares. She wants to live. She's trying to protect herself just a little bit. Like, and I... I just, I, I love the irony of that, even as awful as it was. Uh, I mean, that's how crazy it gets, isn't classic. it? Yeah, I mean, that's classic addiction. It's like, how do I get what I want and avoid the consequences? <laughs> right? It was like, that was, a, that was very early harm reduction. <laughs> oh, God. You talk uh, also about um, ritual and how drug addicts become addicted not only to the drug, but the entire ritual of drug yeah, use. Yeah. And I also think a lot of alcoholics can relate to that, too, especially those of us that were yeah. wine drinkers. But do you have any replacement rituals now, like tea, coffee? Like, is there anything that you're super fussy about? Mm, no, I'm really pretty loose about stuff like that. I mean, I drink your mate, which is this, like, caffeinated tea. Like, I crack open a can of that in the morning, and, like, I, you know, since the breakup, I, you know, I started, I got back on the nicotine, which I regret, but now I, like, now I'm vaping, like, every L.A. douchebag, you know, and uh, I need to quit that, but, um, so, but I don't really have any rituals. I mean, I, you know, I pray before I go to sleep. Um, That sounds like a ritual. Yeah. Baths. Um... No, but the, you know, what the ritual was so, you know, I mean, again, like, you know, I mean, uh, the, what was so addictive about that ritual was that I knew it was the route to the high. Also, I think we like, we, we like certainty. We don't like ambiguity. You know what I mean? Like, well, I'll firebomb a relationship just to know how it'll end. Cause I don't like the like, well, let's just see where this goes. Ah! You know what I mean? Like, but it's like, I don't like that. You know, I don't like the like, well, let me think about like, let's see where this is going. And like, you know, who knows? It's just a journey. Like, I don't like any of that. That's because it brings up a lot. We're fearful people. We're very fearful people. So it's like that, you know, we like certainty. We like to know what's going to happen, you know, and, but that's not life. Life is full of ambiguity. There is no certainty. Even when you think it's certain, that's still the bottom to drop out. So, no, I don't really find any rituals. You know, I like to light candles. I, feel, I find that soothing. Um, I mean, you know, what my ritual, my nightly ritual, I put in my bike, my night guard, so I don't grind my teeth in a pulp. And I put on my little <laughs> eyelash. I put on my little, night, my little mask, 
my little my little eyelash extension guard mask. It's like my black little eye mask. And <laughs> I didn't know there was yeah, such a thing. Is that what that is? You put like an eye mask on to protect your eyelash. Ash yeah, mentioned? it's like a like a tiny bra. It's like yeah, it's like it's like under the top, like a bra, so that you don't crush your eyelash extensions. I mean, mine are really natural looking and short. I don't have like the long drag queeny ones, like you know. But um, yeah, I'm like that's my new obsession. It's like oh, they're like come back every two to three weeks. Every two weeks, I'm there. Fix them, do them, <laughs> make them, do a fill, make them perfect. Oh, if two and a half weeks is good, I'm like two weeks has got to be better, right? Like. Right, of course, and it's like, and of course, if you cry, you can't like get them wet like the first like forty eight hours. So you can't like get water in your face, and you can't cry. And I'm a huge, <laughs> I'm a huge crier. So that's a big thing. I'm like, please don't make me cry. I just got my eyelash extensions done. Okay. <laughs> I can't watch This Is Us tonight because I just got my eyelash done. <laughs> I can't listen to that song. Okay, I just got my eyelash extensions done. Please. <laughs> Not cheap. It's really oh, hard to get in with Yulia. She's really busy. <laughs> so stupid. So stupid. Oh, God. I just, I'm going to smile every time I picture you with your little eyelash bra on. <laughs> yeah, and then my kitty gets up and makes bread, and he takes a snooze next to me as a cuddle with me. I mean, that's a ritual, but no, I don't feel, I don't feel as sort of stuck, you know, like, Addicted to any rituals, right? I wish I'd get addicted to going to the gym. Shoot. Why don't we ever get addicted to good stuff? I mean, I love those people. Right. Like, I'm addicted to exercise. It's like, oh, God, where do, you, where do I pick that up? <laughs> I'm addicted to not napping. That's, my, that's what I'm addicted to. <laughs> oh, God. I want to I touch on relapse a little bit because uh, I hear okay. that you might have some experience with relapse. Um, oh, I do. One truth bomb in your book is where you say um, that when you're on the verge of relapse, nothing makes you get loaded. You've already decided days before you have your reason. You're just looking for an excuse. And, oh, my God, like that is so true. And then later on, you know, I read the story of where after seven years of sobriety, you relapse when some guy you're kissing in a bar shotguns pop. Oh, God, right, right. And. And you, I mean, you had good sobriety, and yet you spiraled low bottom from that incident. So hard, so hard. So I can see how both of those things are true, but they seem sort of polar opposite. So how, like, do you feel like you had a role in that? Okay, first of all, I I didn't have good sobriety. I was totally dry. So I had no tools. I wasn't going to meetings. I wasn't in therapy. I had no tools. I was just dry. Um... I think that, I mean, for me, I know that if I um, introduce an addictive substance into my body, which is what he did against my will by shotgunning me a, mouth, a, a, a mouthful of pot smoke, which I don't even like pot, um, he triggered, he like woke up the dragon. He triggered mm-hmm. my addiction. And then I was like, and then came in the rationalizations of like, oh, well, I can smoke pot because I, I hate pot. You know, and then I'm smoking pot every day. And then, you know, it just progresses from there. I, I can drink because, you know, I haven't drank for seven years. It'll be fine. And then it was, you know, well, I can do Coke because Coke's not crystal. You know, it'll be different. And again, I've, it's been seven years. It's, I'm a different person, you know, and then I'm back in rehab. So I think yeah. that those are two different things. One is, you know, having decided, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up. 
and the other is having the substance introduced into your body, you know, either accidentally through like a medical procedure or against your will, like some guy shotgunning you, pot smoke while he's kissing you, and then that setting off that, you know, that craving. I mean, for me, it's very biochemical. I have a lot of addiction in family, and I, I felt that click. When I did crystal meth for the second time, I felt that weird vortex opened up inside me, and I was like, it was on. And I was mm-hmm. like, I need this to be, I need this every day and I need this to be on the planet and no one's taking it away from me. And it was like, that was the number one priority from that point on. And it's I had never felt that way about it. anything. I could, uh, when I read that paragraph about, so um, scary. Oh. about, yeah, about relapsing from that incident and then how far it took you, how quickly I literally, my mouth was hanging open for the whole page. (laughs) And then I reread it probably twice before I could shut my mouth again. I was just, I have seven years of sobriety next week. And I was like, I needed that reminder. I needed that Mm. reminder of how much we have to protect this, you know? Um, Yeah. It really spirals fast. It gets really, really dark, really, really quickly. And I've had time, you know, I've had five years, I've had three years, I've had, you know, six, seven years, you know, I've had a year and a half. And every time I pick up, it's gnarlier and worse and faster decline than before. It's never different. You know, it's like, okay, one night you can have two beers and you're like, cool. Hey, I'm I'm cured. And then, and then that's, that's a complete in the next time it's, you know, your blotto and it's on. And it's like, it's, I mean, all the yes happened to me. I mean, I, 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 I have no illusion about that now. I mean, I did that yeah. experiment so many times with so many different substances. I'm like, I have this thing. I'm different from other people. And, you know, I mean, I've been arrested. I don't, and it never ends up anywhere good. It ends up psych wards, ER, jail, um, yeah, or rehab. That's it. Within weeks. Yeah, right. Within, yeah, within such a short amount of time. Yeah. and. Yeah. Places you thought you'd never go, right? Lows. That oh you my God! Everything. Never. I mean, that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted people to go. You know, all the things you think that you can, that can't happen to you, they can happen to you. You know, we're all. What the book? What? What? What my journey gave me was incredible compassion for other people. Not so much compassion for myself, but it, you know. And, and I talk about that a little bit when I, you know, in the chain gang. When I, you know, when I'm on the chain gang sweeping the streets. And really feeling like that could, that crazy homeless person could be me or, you know, and I mean, I never thought I'd be arrested for felony domestic violence. Like, are you kidding me? Like that was, the first, that was never even, I mean, it's just, it was, it was shocking to me as it was to everyone else, you know, mm-hmm. or being on a gang or being in a psych ward and all of these things. And so it just gave me enormous compassion for, you know, people being in the wrong place at the wrong time or having a hot moment and losing their cool or being loaded and just doing something stupid. I'm not saying like, Oh, if you murder someone because you snap, you know, get off or anything like that. But I'm just saying like, I get it now. I get when you just kind of like you, you lose it, you know, or you do something stupid in a moment and it costs you, you know, consequences for an entire lifetime. Like I get that now. So you went from being a well-heeled wife and 
um, you know, driving the nice car and carrying the purse and wearing the $3,000 boots to right. literally wearing the beige T-shirt and sweeping it wasn't garbage even a t-shirt. and worse. Yeah, it was, yeah, 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 yeah. I got, I was the, it was a Dickies, tan Dickies shirt, depending which, which thing you were assigned to. So, yeah, tan Dickies shirt that said clean team on the back with a broom. Yeah, me and like 40, like, Hispanic American guys. Yeah, and they're like, "What you here for, Weta? Huh? I'm here for DUI." I'm like, "Um, I'm I'm here for domestic felony, domestic violence with a deadly weapon." They're like, "Oh my god!" You know, and that was the other thing that was like, you know, it was like, you know, I went there all like, you know, they were all I was like the only there. I am, this skinny white Jew, right? And um, I have more time than anyone else. Everyone else got like ten, fifteen days max. I have thirty days. And I'm one of the very few people there for something violent. And it was, like, very humbling. It's like, oof, you know. Not, you're not immune. You're not immune. And that's the story I wanted to tell. Like, I just, all these things. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in Beverly Hills. You know, I graduated magic cum laude. I mean, this is just not what I had planned for myself. And it's like, I just think we need to have more compassion for people. You know, things happen. You told some really touching stories, though, about just small encounters you had with homeless people or drug mm-hmm. addicts while you were in that role. And throughout the course of doing that public service, throughout, the, throughout your punishment, something extraordinary happened to you. So yeah, yeah. tell us about that. So I was... I had an epiphany, you know, I mean, I just, I, I, I finally had, you know, a psychic shift. I had a, I had a Satori as you will. I was sweeping the streets, and, um, it's really exhausting. And I was in my early forties. It's eight hours of sweeping in the hot sun. I mean, it's really, really exhausting and it's manual labor. And, um, I had this epiphany that this could be the best thing that ever happened to me. I just was like, wait a second, Amy. You know, stop feeling sorry for yourself for a second. And you're here. And why are you here? Oh, yeah, it's the consequences of your own actions. Like you could say, oh, well, he was mean to me. Or, oh, the police report. Or, oh, that that was too harsh. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like this is the result of all your actions. And your power is in taking responsibility and taking the consequences and seeing that the theme of your life going, you know, you circling the drain is you. So we need to make some changes. And I was just like, you know, could this be the best thing that ever happened to me instead of the worst thing that ever happened to me? What is this happening for a reason? And what are the lessons here? What is there to learn here? How can this transform me into who I want and need to be? And I, I decided it would be the best thing that ever happened to me. And I embraced it completely. And it taught me, it gave me humility. It gave me a work ethic. And I learned how to be part of a team. Talk about being a worker among workers. You know, and I learned that you could do a job just as, you know, easily. It's just as easy to do a job, you know, well as it is to do it badly. So just do it well. You know what I mean? You know, put your effort into it. Have some integrity. Um, I treated everyone I saw with humanity. Um, you know, it's so t- many times we see people, you know, homeless people and we just ignore them or whatever. And it's like, I was that person everyone was ignoring. They treated us like we were criminals. No one talked to us. We were completely ignored except for 
you know, except for like drunk homeless people who would talk to us. And for a couple of people who were like, thought we were doing environmentalism work. <laughs> They're like, I love the environmentalism work you're doing. That's so great. You're cleaning over graffiti and you're cleaning up the neighborhood. How do I become a part of that? It's so awesome. But just get arrested. It's really not that hard. Um, but um, yeah, I really, and I didn't even know I was going to write a book at that point. I just knew, I just decided this was going to be the thing that was going to change me. And then, you know, later I found that Will Rogers quote that's at the, the beginning of my book, which is the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you. Mm, I love that. I think we can all like, say oh, that yeah. about our addiction in itself. Absolutely. And, completely. Yeah, we can carry it forward to really anything that happens to us. And that is inspiring. I mean, I read that quote on the first page and I right away I thought, whoa, I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> Walt Whitman was not expecting that. But um, I'm going to like this girl, I thought. She's going to quote that. I know I'm going to like this girl. Um, I want to circle back to your dad a little bit, um, if you don't okay. mind, and your mom too. Oh. Because... Um, you really, I mean, you, your dad at one point just said like, don't call me. I mean, you, you, they, they rode the roller coaster with you and, you know, supported you through so many stunts and stints, not stunts, I guess stunts too. Yeah, both, it was both actually, yeah. And then at some point they just couldn't do it anymore. It was just too hard for them. And, um, you know, your dad said, don't call. Um, and I know that he celebrates this book and, and is so oh my proud God. that you're helping us. He's others. so proud of me. I am, the, the, I am his proudest achievement. He said, you're that, the pride of my life. And he's like, I've so never... Beautiful. Yeah. And he's just like, I understand now why you went through everything because it was all so you could write this book so you could help other people and there's no higher calling than helping other people. That's amazing. I'm surprised <laughs> even saying that. But, uh, you know, yeah, he had to take some space. Yeah. He, Uh, you know, I'm sorry, go on. I just wonder if they're bracing themselves at all or if they've gotten past that, you know, having gone through seeing you relapse so many times. And if you see someone doubt your sobriety, does that make you angry or defensive? Or do you have compassion for them, too, for what they went through? Um, I don't think they doubt my sobriety. Uh, They don't like when I joke about it. You know, like I said to my dad, you know, well, if you die, you know, I'd probably you know, relapse. He said, not funny, A. And he said, and B, it's in the will that if you do, you get nothing. <laughs> so it's like, nice try. <laughs> like, um, um, I don't, you know, I've seen, there are people with, you have 19 years who, who relapse. So, you know, I, I, I hope I don't. I don't think I will, but I mean, you, you never know. I mean, it's like, so I don't, I don't, again, what other people think of me, I'm not really that interested in. It's like, if I had cared, that would have kept me from coming back. I had to really stop caring what people thought because I was relapsing so much and I was considered so crazy. And if I had cared so much about what people thought about me and my sobriety and the social sort of like mat math, the 12 step world, then I would have been too embarrassed to come back. And I was like, I am going to live. Like, you know, it was almost out of fierce, you know, defiance. But I just didn't also care. 
I was like, who wants to be queen of the drunks? Who cares? Like, I don't really care. And that's what I wanted are... to get you to because I, uh, I'm just thinking of, I don't know, just it might, I don't know, I broke my leg last year, you know, and now every time my husband like sees me stepping on ice, he rushes over and helps me. And I'm like, it's not because he doesn't want me to get hurt so much as like, that was a real pain in his butt when I broke my leg. So it's like he's protecting <laughs> himself by helping me. Right. And, and I, as much as I appreciate it, I'm also a little bit irritated by that. And I just, I wondered if there's any of that for you, a feeling like, ah, I've got it, oh, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, I don't even know that they're, they're more worried about, I mean, my mother, well, before she just, she broke her hip, you know, about two months ago and had a heart attack and a pulmonary embolism all together. Oh, no. And that was just brutal. And so now I'm kind of like, you know. I don't, it's just, I'm, you know, worried and handling, trying to handle things. And it's like being really shot me into adulthood, you know, a little, you know, a little late. I'm a little late to the party of adulthood, but here I am. Um, (laughs) And um, I just said to her, I don't know how you did this with me for 20 years because you've been, you know, in the hospital and, you know, in a nursing, you know, facility and, you know, doing physical therapy and that kind of stuff for, I don't know, it's only been a couple months. And I mean, I am waking up in panics, you know, and if I can't, you know, even when I couldn't reach her, you know, my mom's 80, 81 years old. If I couldn't reach her, I'd start freaking out. So before this happened, she, when she couldn't reach me, she would panic. Was I okay? Was I having a meltdown? Was I having a seizure? Not so much was I using. I don't think my parents really think that's coming back. Mm-hmm. But more, they're more like, I mean, there was one point during, you know, when I was processing the breakup where my dad was like, we need to put you in the psych hospital. Like, are you going to make it? Like, this is scary because, you know, I really, really fell apart. I talk about, you know, feeling like a puddle person. I just, you know, I literally felt like someone had taken out all my bones and I just collapsed onto the floor. You know, I mean, heartbreak's the worst. It sucks. Oh, it absolutely is. It's the worst, you know. Right. You also oh, mentioned totally, that. It, it, yeah, it's like, and they're still alive. It's like grieving, grieving someone who's dead, like at least they're dead. Grieving someone who's still alive is like the worst. It's just the worst. And also, I guess I felt like, wow, I did everything right. I was like a really good girlfriend and I was super loving and I was like, I still got my heart broken. That sucks. You know, it's like, so, um, but I got through it and it was right before the book launch and it was just like a really difficult time. And, you know, I just, I guess I was supposed to go through all that on my own. And, and, and the fact that I survived that and stayed sober, because usually romance has taken me out. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I relapsed a lot over, over men. And um, the fact that I didn't makes me feel like I might have, you know, some better, some better grounding this time around. Um, but um, does it irritate me? Uh, not really. I mean, I get it. You know, 20 years of stuff, of course they're, it's going to take them some time to relax. My dad's more relaxed about it. My mom is less relaxed about it. And your mom is sober, you know, so she's like maybe... <laughs> get maybe this. she gets it more, but yeah. But she also <laughs> is the one who never took any, a break from me. She never was like, hey, I need a break from you. You know, my dad, who is not an alcoholic, was the one who just said, wow, like I, you know... Uh, you, uh, you've drained me financially and emotionally for years. You know, I'm over the roller coaster. Uh, you know, call me when you have good news or don't call me. 
And, uh, but he never stopped loving me and he never stopped supporting me. He just needed some space because it was, we're very connected and he was really worried and hurt and frustrated and scared. And I mean, I think that's different. I think people need to know, like, you know, even when I got back into sober living, if I needed financial help, they were always there for me. My parents never, he had a drug test of me at certain points. They shipped me off to different places and they threatened to cut me off and they threatened this, they threatened, you know what I mean? But they never, never stopped believing in me. And that was the key. They never stopped loving me. They never stopped believing in me. And that was really important because there was a point when I really didn't believe in myself anymore. I was like, I'm not going to get this. I'm going to die a drug addict. Like I'm not, mm. you know, and I believed that they believed and that got me through. So even my dad's tough love, there was, uh, there was still, it was, it was not like tough love, like, you know, throw you out of the house, not talk to you. You know, he just needed a break and I don't blame him. I think I'd gotten, he was pissed off because I it was, I'd snuck out of the rehab to make out with that British guy and then gotten caught and then, you know, he's over it. <laughs> over my antics, over my over my antics. <laughs> I feel like that that you, this book must offer so much hope, though, to family members who are wondering if they're doing the right thing by standing by someone that, that's a chronic relapser. And I, I know I certainly take a lot of hope from that, knowing that, like uh, as you said, like if you can get sober, anybody can get sober. Hang in there. Yeah, totally. Them. You just don't know when it's going to click for someone. I mean, I'm not saying don't have boundaries, you know what I mean? And I'm, you can say, hey, I don't want to talk to you when you're high or be around you when you're high or I'm not giving you money for drugs or, you know, you could absolutely have boundaries, but don't stop loving them. Don't stop having compassion for them. Like, you know, they're hurting. Addiction is like a possession. It's you're not really, you're not in your right mind when you're really in it. You're really kind of out of your mind. I was, you know, and it was like, I read this really cool quote by J.M. Storm on the dictionary podcast and it was like, you know, that people who are self-destructing are trying to destroy something in themselves that doesn't belong. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah, I have, I'm thinking about that. My wheels are turning as you say that. It's like yeah. we're in there somewhere, but some other force is kind of driving the bus and we need to get back you know, to ourselves. Yeah. I just, I think that, you know, I think that we really need to remember, I mean, I just came up against this where a sponsee, you know, my sponsor was like, cut her loose. She'd relapsed a bunch of times and lied to me. And I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I just thought, how many times do people not give up on me? I just, I mean, I gave her a talking to, you know, and I said, I can't really help you if you're lying to me, but I just, I couldn't cut her loose. Well, because you have the biggest heart. Your, you know, you know. Thank you. That's probably why it hurts so much when it got broken. <laughs> <laughs> probably why. Well, I, I think that's true. Took it with me. He took it with him, and listen, I was like, just, you know. Like, but um, the people yeah. that laugh the loudest so, sometimes cry the hardest, and just of course, here's the clown. Big heart. Such a big heart. Yeah. Um, I've kept you on a little bit longer than I had planned, I just realized. But the problem is, Ms. Dresner, is that I could just talk to you all night. And um, that might get boring for our listeners at some point, much as <laughs> I would enjoy it. <laughs> um, I do want to just give you a chance to say one more thing before we say goodnight. Mm-hmm. And that is that um, 
I was really shocked at the way that you were treated by some of the medical professionals that you encountered. Yeah. And yeah. on more than one occasion, um, you know, one after a suicide attempt, even, um, you were told, you know, you really, you shouldn't be depressed because you're pretty, you're too pretty and too <laughs> young to be depressed. And I just yeah. couldn't believe that that came out of the mouth of, of a doctor, yeah. or a medical professional. I so, know, I know. I'm I'm hoping that they're reading this book. I mean, this is your voice. This is your this is your um moment to 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 share what needs to be said and what is your lesson for them in this book? What do you want um people in the medical community to take away from your experience? That mental illness and addiction are completely separate from you know, your youth or your beauty or your, you know, bank account that, you know, I mean, there are so, I, I can't, you know, I think that that's, I think they really need to read up on that kind of stuff. And I think that they're both very biologically based conditions. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of time for the medical community in general to, to sort of catch up. I, had to 5150, a friend of mine who had lost his sobriety after 14 years and was smoking crystal meth out of, and living out of his car. And he was off his bipolar meds and nuts. And I had to put him in a psych hospital. And um, you could see the way that the nurses who were taking down his information were looking at him and treating him. And there was one uh, black lab nurse and um, she confessed to us that she had been sober for 26 years. And she said to me, nobody here knows. And she said, they all say, once a drug user, always a drug user. Hmm. And she said, you know, when I, I, don't, I don't tell them I have 26 years off crack cocaine. And she said, but on the day that I retire, I'm going to tell them all that. And it's like, I wish wow. you'd tell them now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I wish you would tell them now so they would know that, no, not once a drug user, always a drug user. I mean, I did have one medical, you know, a doctor when I told her I was sober that she was like, congratulations, that's amazing. That's incredibly, you know, that's something to be incredibly proud of. And I was like, phew, you know what I mean? I was like, okay, not every doctor is sort of like, I don't want to take another alcoholic patient or thought I was med-seeking when I was getting Prozac. Like, hello, Prozac, come on, doesn't make you high. If Prozac made you high, I would have never smoked crystal meth on top of it. And, you know, come on. Like, <laughs> give me a break. That's the thing. Antidepressants don't make you, don't make you high or happy. They're, they're, you're lucky if they make you undepressed a little bit, you know, <laughs> where you don't wake up every day and you're like, hey, I wonder if the shower will hold my, the shower spigot will hold my weight if I, you know what I mean? Like, you just wake up on a day and you're like, okay, I don't actually want to just, you know, you know, eat a gun today. So it's like, uh, I guess I just would say, you know, the people that really made a difference to me in my treatment um, when I was in rehab were the people that treated me the way, not how crazy and out of my mind and addicted and unstable and hysterical and depressed that I was at the time. They treated me like who they knew I could be. Yeah. At my full, fullest potential. And I, there were two techs in particular who treated me like that with a lot of respect and a lot of love and a lot of patience. And 
knew who I could be once I got out of my active addiction. And I'll never forget those two texts. Where in other texts sort of, you know, sort of made me feel not quite as, as good about myself. And I think that's the thing you've got to, you've got to lift people up and remind them who they can be. Because this is just a stage, just a possession. And we can change. And we do change. And you can, you know, you change and your whole life changes. I think we need to, you know, provide the faith. I think the medical community needs to be the people who provide the faith for people who are suffering and to have compassion because there's probably an addict in your family. Amen, Amy. (laughs) Preach it. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm feeling it. My heart is squeezing. It's it's the heart of what it's all about. I mean, that's how we're going to change this world. And, you know, I said to you before we started recording that I feel like you threw a grenade into the into the conversation a little bit because we're all kind of doing our part to to move the conversation farther and break open the shame and 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 share our truths and um this book is full of it full of truth and full of honesty and an insight I mean uh, it's just you've done such a great work here and I'm really grateful to you thank you and, so much I'm so so happy to connect with you finally and you love the book and to speak with you and it's been, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I feel like I'm going to, you know, I'm excited (laughs) to see you as she recovers. Yes. I will see you in LA in a few months and uh, we'll definitely, we'll have to like Facebook live or something when that happens so that we can say hi to everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So so you can, you know, yeah. Uh, sorry, I keep cutting you off. There's a little bit of a delay, and it's making me a horrible host tonight. But <laughs> okay. Our, our, uh, um, I, anyone that wants to learn more about you can find you at amydresner.com. And your book, where can they buy your book? Um, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon Canada. It's on Amazon in UK and France and in the uh, U.S., uh, it's also in uh, many uh, Barnes and Noble, um, but Amazon seems to be where everyone's grabbing it. I think that's where it's cheapest. And it's you so. voiced your own audiobook. Did I hear that as well? I did, and I people are loving it. People are loving it. Yeah, I do all my own. You can hear me, my my manly voice, and all my bad impersonations. And people say it's really a ride, and they love it. Yeah, I might have to. I might have to uh, hear it. A, go through it a second time yeah. with the audio book because I'd love to hear it in your voice. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was fun. It was. I mean, I was really, really grateful they let me narrate it. I think it was important for me to tell my own story. But you know, it's like, and people, yeah, people seem to be digging it a lot. So that's cool. It's yeah. great. It's wonderful work. Thank you so much for being on the Bubble Hour, <laughs> which is now the Bubble Hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Bubble hour point five. <laughs> Sorry, I said make you change your podcast name. You're like, God, yeah. it's a blowhard. I had that blowhard. Damn it, Amy, I have to rebrand. I my title on. I just snorted. Did you hear me snort? Oh, my gosh. Laughed so hard I snorted. Oh, God. Okay. Well, that's a wonderful place to end our conversation tonight. Okay. Hang on the line while I play some closing music. Don't okay. go away. All right. Uh, listen, okay, okay. You can find Amy at amydresner.com. Uh, if you also want to write to her through me, send your comments and feedback to thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure that Amy gets it. And um, 
if you wouldn't mind, take a moment and rate us on iTunes because that helps us move up a little bit and helps other people find us. So that's a way for you to give back so that other people in recovery can hear about great authors like Amy and all of the amazing stories that we tell here on the Bubble Hour. So that's it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, take good care. I did that, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free From power, weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame I want to